Well, hey, Harvest, thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. I am more than ready for a uh, change of season. I am ready for summer, and I am ready for uh, a change in a lot of things. I hope that we are uh, once again meeting together sometime, uh, hopefully not in the too distant future. If you would, this morning, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139. We're gonna be in Psalm 139. We're in the middle of a series where we have been looking at the and studying the attributes of God. Up until this point, we have looked at the fact that God is eternal, that he is all-knowing, that he is a righteous judge. And today we are going to be looking at the fact that God is omnipresent, that he is always present, the fact that God is near. The big idea this morning, I'll give it to you right off the start, is this, because God is near, I am never isolated. Now, when you consider the fact that God is a righteous judge, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he is always near, it's interesting, depending on which side of the gospel you live, that can either be very comforting or uh, very frightening. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you do not believe that you are reconciled to this holy God, the fact that God is all of these things, that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and always near, well, that can be a thing that causes fear. The fact that he is all-knowing means that we are exposed. The fact that he is a righteous judge means that we are condemned. But if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, these things can be of great comfort. And even this morning, I wanna take one more week looking at these kind of major attributes of God. And then what we're going to do is we're gonna shift the study next week to different attributes of God, just as important, but they're attributes that are more identified with how he interacts with us, kind of the idea of his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness. So this morning, we're gonna jump into Psalm 139. It's a very familiar Psalm for many of you. I don't have time this morning to develop all 24 verses. So I'm gonna focus my attention this morning on verses seven through 12. So let's do this. Let's pick it up in verse seven. Let me read that for you. It says in verse seven of Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So in essence, what David is saying here, after taking the first six verses of this Psalm and explaining that God knows everything about us, that he was there when we were created, that he knows our thoughts before we think them, our words before we say them. He says in verse three that he is familiar with all of our ways. We're given this truth in verses seven through 12 that wherever God is or wherever we can be, wherever we can go, God is already there. there. There's no ability that we have to hide from a God who is present wherever we are. It's not that man hasn't tried. Adam and Eve, has, when they sinned in Genesis 3 in the garden, we immediately see that they tried to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. We see the prophet Jonah, when, when he doesn't wanna follow God's command that he go and be a prophet to the city of Nineveh and call it to repentance, he, he heads the other way. He tries to flee the presence of the Lord. So men have tried to hide, but this is impossible because of the idea that God is always near, he is ever present. Now, conversely, the truth that God is 
always near, that there's no place that we can find ourselves that God is not there. That, that's a great comfort for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ as their savior, who feel that they have been, what we're gonna look at later, reconciled to God. If I could brag for a minute on our, on our worship team, one of the things that has been a really big encouragement for me in this season is our worship team has been inviting us into their different homes during the course of the last couple months. And on Friday nights at 8 p.m., they've been basically just giving us a worship concert. And that has been a joy just to be invited into the different homes and to see them lead us in worship. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed in my time at Harvest over the last 10 years is the fact that so many of the songs that we sing are actually expressions of the hearts of the people on our worship team. And, and my favorite song, and I, I might be showing a little bit of favoritism here, but it was written by my daughter, Catherine. And it's a song that we sing often as a church. It's a song called Holding Steady. And there's a truth in that song that I just think is really powerful. The lyrics of that song, I'm gonna uh, say them to you, I won't bother you with singing them, just that that's an act of grace on my part. But here's what the words say. It says, you won't lead me where you won't be. Holding steady, you will lead me home. You have promised you won't leave us. Holding steady, you will lead me home. And there's great comfort for the follower of Jesus Christ. And I think that's especially true in this season that we really understand what it means to experience the nearness of God. So quick four points this morning. Here's the first one. Reality lives beyond what we can see. There's an old adage that says, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and we find ourselves in a culture living at a time where we are in a scientific postmodern age. Science tells you that for something to be real, it must be observable and repeatable. But the reality and the truth is scripture is that God is uh, invisible and he is immaterial. God is spirit. And to even make that more difficult for us, we're told in John 4, 24, that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the question that we're confronted with is, how do we worship something that we cannot directly observe? And the good news is God, through his grace, he's given us numerous ways where we can get to know this invisible, immaterial God. I'm gonna give you three of those right now. I'm gonna give you a couple later in the sermon. But in order to explain these to you, I would have some of you, if you've got your Bibles there, turn to Hebrews 1, the first three verses of chapter one. For others of you, we'll put those on the screen. But it says in Hebrews 1, verses one through three, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the first thing that we see is God reveals himself. He speaks to us through his word. So 2 Timothy tells us that the word of God, the Bible is actually God breathed. God is writing you a letter. It is breathed and it is inspired by the spirit of God, revealing the character and the nature of who God is. If we look at Hebrews and we keep reading into verse two, it says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also, get this, he created the world. So the second way that God reveals himself is through creation. Romans 1, 19 says, for what can be known about God has clearly been made evident to them so that they're not without excuse that his invisible attributes, the same things we've been talking about in this series, the idea of his eternal power and divine nature, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that were made. 
One of the ways that this has been described is through an old story about two explorers who go through um, the jungles of Africa and they come to a clearing and they discover this immaculate garden. And they, be, they decide that what they're going to do is they're gonna set up camp along the edge of the garden in hopes of meeting the gardener. Well, a few days go by and the gardener never shows, but the garden continues to be well-kept. And they begin to think, well, maybe he's sneaking in at night. Maybe he's coming at a time that we can't see him. So they begin to stagger their sleep. They have watches hoping to catch this gardener sneaking into the garden. They put bells throughout the garden to see if they can discover his presence. But after a time, they, again, haven't come into contact directly with the gardener. All they've got is this garden. And so they, they decide, well, we can keep him from sneaking in. So they put a fence around the garden and, and hope that eventually that he will materialize. But the truth is more days go by, they continue to be camped there and the garden continues to be well-kept. And, and one of the explorers eventually turns to his buddy and he says, well, maybe this gardener is not only invisible to us, maybe he's immaterial. And, and the other explorer turns back to his friend and he says, I see no difference between an invisible, immaterial gardener and no gardener at all. Well, and some would view that as it relates to God. If you, if you can't see him, if he's invisible, if he's immaterial, how is that different from him not existing? And, and, and here's the reality. There's a huge difference. And the, dis, the difference is there's a garden. E- even though we can't see the spirit of God, we can see the effects of the spirit of God. We can't observe the wind, but we can feel its effects. We don't always... Um, we can experience emotion. We, we can't see love, but we know that it exists. And it's the same with God. God is a spirit. There, there are some that would believe that not, God didn't just create everything, that he isn't just evident in his creation, but that he has actually become his creation, that in essence, the God is the garden, not rather than the gardener. Creation is not the God. That's a religion called pantheism. The idea of the garden is actually God himself. God is everywhere, but he's not everything. And our struggle is that we want to worship. We tend to want to worship what is visible and what we can see rather than worship a God that we cannot see. So he is visible through his word. He is visible through creation. And he has made himself visible through his son, Jesus Christ Verse three of Hebrews one, it says of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John 14, six, Jesus says to Philip, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Everything that you need to know about the spirit of God can be seen through Jesus Christ. Is God just? Is he caring? Is he loving? Is he forgiving? Is he merciful? Look to Jesus. So the first point is this, that reality lives beyond what we can see. Here's the second thing. Our problem, it's nature, not nearness. For nearness to feel near, we have to be of a similar nature. The reason we sometimes sense that God is remote is because that there is a dissimilarity in our natures. It's not that he has left the building. It's it's not that he isn't near, it's that we're different in our natures. Husbands, we get this, right? It's possible to be in the same room as your spouse and be a million miles apart. Kristen and I, we can be driving in a car and if we get into an argument along that drive that we're in close proximity, very close, 
the reality is there can be a lot of distance between two people who are physically near. The Bible describes this distance that we sometimes feel between us and God, even though he's near. The biblical word is alienation. In Ephesians 2, we're told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we followed the course of the world and were by our nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But then Ephesians in chapter 4 goes on and says, encouraging those who have given their life to Christ, this is don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated, there it is, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Though God is near, we are separated by the difference in our very natures. God is holy, we are sinful. We see this on display in Isaiah 59, when God says, behold, the hand of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sinful is not just a description of the things that we do. It is the very nature of who we are. I was spending some time this week with my youngest son and his family, and I was talking to his wife, Morgan. They have three young kids, two boys, five and two, and then, or four and two, and then a daughter that's just newly born. And as the daughter was kind of restless and wanting to be fed, I turned to Morgan. I was like, hey, um, do you believe that we have to teach our kids how to sin? Or are they born with a sin nature? And she was very quick to say, oh, for sure, they're born with a sin nature. And we experience the same thing with our kids. And I would argue the fact that we have this dissimilar nature is actually the cause of much of our unrest. Sometimes we just need space, but that's hard to do when God is always present. He's always near. I don't know if you've noticed, but one of the things that I've seen on social media and on Facebook and YouTube is there is no end to the limits that people can go to to amuse themselves, to fill the time. I've seen trick um, golf shots where guys are hitting uh, CD discs into CD players or hitting golf balls into um, trick shots into cups or just the goofy home workout routines and the video games. And we have an ability to invent an unlimited amount of entertainments and distractions because we cannot live with the fact that we are alienated from God. So how do we resolve this problem of God being near but feeling so distant? Well, biblically, the, the word to describe the distance is alienation. The word that describes the resolve is reconciliation. So point three is the resolve is reconciliation. When there's hostility between two parties, be it us and God, be it us and somebody else, there's different ways that we can resolve the problems that we can end the conflict. The first of those ways is through compromise. If, if Kristen and I are in a disagreement, let's say we're arguing one night, we're sitting at home and she's like, I really wanna watch a movie. And I'm like, well, I want to watch sports. So we can compromise. We can watch The Legend of Bagger Vance. What an awesome movie about golf. So we, we can find a middle ground. Each of us can give a little bit. We can resolve the conflict through compromise. The problem with our alienation with God is the compromise is impossible. God will never change and man cannot change himself. Man cannot right himself. We've tried. We've tried through religion. We've tried through philosophy. We've tried through education. We've tried through the justice system. And because we all 
know all too well that, that, that our sinfulness creates the byproducts of guilt and shame. We don't want a God who winks at our sin. We want a God who removes our sin. We would not want a God who was able to compromise. We don't want a God that can change. We want a God who is holy. We want a God who is just. We wouldn't want a God who doesn't right what is wrong, doesn't fix what is broken, doesn't make all things new. And the only way to remove the alienation between us and God was for us to be completely changed, to be transformed. The good news is Romans 5.10 tells us, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we're saved by his life. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 is talking about the separation between Jews and Gentiles, but it quickly morphs into, for both parties, there was a separation between us and God. It says in verse 14, speaking of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then in verse 16, he has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The only way to resolve the separation that existed was for one side, for God, to move on our behalf and for us to become completely transformed. We cannot change ourselves. God cannot change. So the resolve was that Jesus he became us. He took our place. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Reconciliation is the only cure for the alienation and the distance we sometimes feel between ourselves and God. Okay, so we've looked at the problem that it's nature, it's not God's nearness. The resolve is reconciliation. Uh, a pretty, um, pretty powerful point. I worked on this one a lot. Here's point four. Now what? Now what? Now, now, remember earlier, I said that God reveals himself in numerous ways. I've given you three, that he did it through his word, that he's done it through creation, and that he's done it through um, done it through, um, through Jesus, his son. Let me give you two more. These are important. He has placed his very nature, his spirit inside us. Now, now this is actually really profound. Let me explain it to you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? 2 Peter 1.4 says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, in order to keep God's nearness near, what God did was he took and placed a portion of himself, the Holy Spirit, inside of us so that there is no more conflict between our nature and the nature of God because God actually resides in us. Now, we can quench the spirit. Sin can still make us feel a difference, but the reality is, and the guarantee is this, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your nature is always aligned with the character of God the Father because he has given you the spirit. That's incredible. Ephesians says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. He is the down payment. He is the promise of an inheritance that we will one day require or we will one day receive. Here's the second thing. It's not only because he gave us his spirit, but we experience the presence of God when we gather as the people of God. 
Something happens when the people of God gather to lift high the name of Jesus. God's spirit becomes tangible. You can feel his presence. The people of God experience the presence of God when we gather as the church. We're told in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three gather in my name, I'm present in, in that gathering. Psalm 22 says that God inhabits the praise of his people. And it was interesting, just about 10 days ago, I was passing out books in the parking lot. I did it on a Tuesday for about four hours, Kristen and I in Spring Lake. And then we passed out some books, some gifts at Grand Haven the next day. And it was interesting to watch the people as they drove up. We, we were standing outside, it was beautiful days, but, but people got emotional just pulling into the parking lot. At Spring Lake, a couple of the people were like, can I just go in and see the auditorium? I'm like, there's nothing in there. And they're like, no, man, we, we miss it. We, we, we miss gathering. There's a sense of the spirit of God in that place. People pulling up in tears saying, I, I, I just miss the gathering? Well, because that's because we get a flavor, we get a taste of the presence of God when we gather his believers, because God inhabits that space when we gather, and the reality is we're aligned even one another believer to believer because we all possess the Holy Spirit. We get that taste of the nearness of God. And I would just say that in this season, I've been asking the question a lot. What is God trying to teach me? What is he trying to teach us? What is he trying to teach his church? In this season where we are uh, not gathering, where we are suspended, where our worship services are restricted, you can put whatever words you want there while we are not meeting. And, and, and let me suggest this. Maybe in this season, one of the things that God is trying to teach us is to not just settle for a taste of his presence, but to understand that we have the presence of God with us, not just when we gather, but he is always near. He is always close. Satan is not just a liar. He's a counterfeiter. And, and what he likes to do is he likes to take what is good and elevate it to a level where it becomes the supreme thing and that becomes dangerous. I'll give you two examples in the Bible. Obedience, following the law, obviously that's good, but we see Jesus in constant conflict with the Pharisees because they believed and elevated the law to the extent that they believed that they could change themselves and by keeping the law end the alienation between them and God. Another thing that we see in the Bible over and over again is though the temple was a good thing, it was the center of God's people's faith. The, the, the truth is that sometimes the temple became the thing rather than God being the thing. And we see twice in Acts, in Acts 7 and in Acts 20 or 17, the apostles having to say, God does not live in temples made by man. We tend to want to worship what is tangible and what we can experience and what we can see. And as important as gathering is, and gathering has the body of Christ is important, don't ever let your church become the focal point of your faith. That's a danger. I pray during this break from our meeting that God will teach us to appreciate the things that maybe we took for granted to make us understand that his spirit is near, not just when we gather, but he is always near. I think it will reveal our hearts. Are we just going through the motions and following our pattern of behavior? Or are we really followers of Jesus Christ longing to experience his nearness? So how do I close this? How, how do we apply this? 
well, I'm tired of points. Maybe you are too. So what I'd like to do is just read you some verses and let's just look at what God says about what we should learn or what we should appreciate about the fact that he is always near. In Genesis 28, 15, it says this, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back into this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. An incredible truth in that verse, because God is near, we know that we can trust his promises. He will do what he's promised to do. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for what is for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. As Joshua's entering the promised land, God says to him, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So the call in those two verses is to be strong and courageous that no man can stop us from experiencing the nearness of God. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Goes on and says, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then in verse 13, just a couple of verses later, it says, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. So God isn't near just to be near. He's near to accomplish something for us. He will uphold us. He doesn't want us to be dismayed. He will help us. He's not just near, he's holding our hand. Hebrews 13, five says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you because God is near as I preached a couple weeks ago, stop binging. Stop looking for other sources of satisfaction. And then finally, Matthew 28. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Then hear this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is no day coming where God will remove his nearness from us because he has promised that he will be with us through the end of the age. That should give us comfort as followers of Jesus Christ, that he is with us today. He is not leaving. And no matter what we experience, no matter where we go, he is already there. So let me do this. We're gonna close this service by hearing this song sung led by our worship team. It's called Run to the Father. And the lyrics of that song Say this, I run to the Father, I fall into grace. I am done with the hiding, no reason to wait. Can't hide from God. He's always near, he's ever present. The question is, will we trust that God is good, that he is for us? And in this season, may we examine that we're trusting the promises of God and sensing his nearness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this passage of scripture. Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are all knowing, that you are all powerful, that you are always near, that you are a righteous judge. And God, we, God, we praise your name, that you've chosen to show us mercy, to show us grace, to show us love, and to show us kindness. May we meditate and reflect on those things. It's in your name we pray, amen.